From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Arnson. This is your news for Thursday, June 8th. Earlier this month, three states that use water from the Colorado River agreed to use less over the next three years. They were able to reach a deal thanks to an exceptionally wet winter. As snowmelt flows down to the cities and farms that depend on it, KUNC reporter Alex Hager went to see the Colorado River get refilled in real time. Ken Brenner is sitting on the yellow rubber edge of a huge inflatable raft as the boat splashes through the Yampa River. We're flying along. There's there's no way in the world you could run this fast along the side of the river. The Yampa cuts through wide sagebrush plains and dramatic red rock canyons in northern Colorado. And this year, it is full. Water is the highest it's been in more than a decade. Well, it's like a roller coaster, only there's no rail. It's, you're all at the mercy of the water and your helmsman. Brenner grew up on a ranch near the river and now has a role in state water policy making. He's one of 30 people on an educational trip down the river where snowmelt is rushing downstream. That leaves a bumpy ride of big rapids, even for an experienced guide like Alyssa Schaefer. Every time we come around the corner, we don't know what to expect. Are we going to see big holes that we have to avoid? Or is camp going to be harder to catch? Is there going to be an eddy there? All kinds of unexpected, amazing stuff happening. This year has been an exceptionally wet one across the Southwest. Extraordinary snow in the Rocky Mountains is flowing through the Yampa, into the Green River, and then the Colorado, where the nation's largest reservoirs are going to get a big boost after getting squeezed by years of dry winters and steady demand. The tap is like swung fully open right now. We're seeing that happen here. Matt Rice with the conservation group American Rivers is sitting on the banks of the Yampa, where the roiling, muddy water has crept up so high, it's drowned the sandy beaches that usually serve as campsites for rafters. We are quite literally being saved by the Yampa Basin right now. When every molecule of water is important, right? The Yampa is delivering on such a monster scale right now. The reason the Yampa looks like this is partially because it's relatively untouched as western rivers go. This water did not come from behind a dam, nor was it diverted from another basin. Lindsay Marlowe runs the conservation group Friends of the Yampa and says it's rare to see that on display. When we talk about the greater Colorado system, we really focus on it as like a commodity, like we're buying and trading, and, and we seem to forget the people and the habitats and the animals and the fish along the way. And a lot of that flora and fauna is thriving this year. Alongside the river, bright, lush clusters of trees and bushes are home to a noisy chorus of birds. Underwater, endangered native fish are seeing conditions primed for reproduction. And all that water is moving around sediment, creating and maintaining better habitats for them in the future. Marlowe says it's facts like those that get lost in big conversations about water management. We don't know by changing things and controlling things how much that affects the greater whole. And when people don't feel the effects, they tend to ignore them. As the region's water managers make decisions about that big picture, they're facing the reality that one wet winter will not save the Colorado River. Audrey Turner, another member of the trip, is enjoying a sunny stretch of flat water, a break from the rapids. She's with the Colorado River District, a water policy agency. 
it's important to, for us to be grateful and appreciate what uh, Mother Nature gave us and, and recognize that it might not be here again for an unknown period of time. I'm Alex Hager on the Yampa River. The Ute Mountain Ute Tribe hosted its 134th annual bear dance in Toyoc, Colorado this past weekend. This year, the event was open to the public but closed to media. Instead of attending the dance, Clark Adamitis of KSJD dropped into the annual powwow event nearby. The rhythm of the drum echoes through the air. 150 people sit on lawn chairs. Dancers, adorned in vibrant, jingling regalia, are here from across the region. The bear dance powwow in Toyak has seen some restrictions in recent years. This year we came out of COVID in May. Ute Mountain Ute Chairman Manuel Hart watches the powwow from a distance. May 11th to be exact, by resolution from the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, we lifted our declaration of emergency. So once we lifted that, things opened up for all of us. Some powwow dances are shared between tribes. Bear dance is a Ute celebration. Hosting the two events during the same weekend allows the tribe to share something quintessentially Ute with everyone. We have this celebration that only the Utes know, and the Utes carry this on every spring. So with that, it's just very important to us to teach our children about the dance, the songs, everything that comes with it. So My new outfit is being the process being made. It's uh, I see one man, probably in his mid-twenties, who is putting on pieces of an outfit made of red fabric and animal fur. Darrell Vicente is a Hickoria Apache man who goes to 20 to 30 powwows every year. It's really fun, you know, when you feel that rhythm, the beat, and you know you can, you know, get down. Vicente traveled more than 140 miles to get here from Dulce, New Mexico. I even taught my nephew, my nieces, and my brothers, I encouraged them to dance to, you know, to keep this going. We've been doing this ever since my grandfather was dancing. Vicente carries the memory of his grandfather in the multicolored regalia he's wearing. It represents the prairie chicken. And you know, my breastplate, it was made by my grandfather. And right now he's not here, you know, may God rest his soul. And you know, he made it out of love. And he told me that he danced with it when he was, you know, my age. And then I feel honored, you know, to wearing it and dancing it myself. The bear dance and the powwow are annual celebrations of renewal. For Chairman Hart of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, it's a chance to appreciate the common bond of all living things. We celebrate what life is about. Our Creator gave us a lot of things. This year we were blessed to have snow on the mountains, and today we see that water, water is life, and it brings all of us together because water is very essential to everything, human beings, plants, animals, birds, everything. I'm Clark Adamitis. State-funded psilocybin research is coming to Arizona. The state announced it will award $5 million in grants for researchers to conduct clinical studies on hallucinogenic psilocybin mushrooms for their potential mental health benefits, especially for veterans. And Arizona is just one of many states around the country that's moving toward legalization or decriminalization of psychedelic drugs. But growing Western interest in these drugs has many indigenous people sounding the alarm. 
These are plants they have been cultivating for millennia, and to do it right, they say, Western medicine should create relationships with traditional knowledge holders. Lauren Gilger of KJZZ spoke with journalist Caridwin Cornelius about the issue. It goes back thousands of years, but I think we don't really know because the archaeological record is not clear, especially when it comes to things like mushrooms that don't preserve well in the archaeological record. But we do think that there's there's some evidence that it goes back maybe 5,000 years. It just, it's, it's difficult to say, really. And describe for us how, you know, these cultures have traditionally used these kinds of psychedelics. So over these thousands of years, they have cultivated relationships with plants and fungi and learned about them, developed rituals surrounding them, incorporated them into their culture, into their belief systems. They often consider them to be relatives, like family members, and are sacred. Um, and in a way, they've developed a science around them, you know, learning, learning about them as medicines, developing that culture around them and learning their effects on people and on the community. Mm-hmm. So now, now, as we're seeing Arizona fund research into these, as we're seeing sort of a wave of interest in the broader Western culture and in medical communities into psychedelics and the uses that are being shown from them, we're seeing, it sounds like at the same time, some indigenous people speaking out about this and sort of saying, you know, don't forget this side of history here. What are you hearing? What are their main concerns? often in historically they've been taken out of these communities dishonestly or the knowledge has been stolen mm-hmm. um, and now they are being used in ways that are not according to the belief systems of these people so they're they're being considered medicines like pills essentially they are being um, monetized and often used in in disrespectful ways separated from their sacred sort of container that they have in indigenous societies, separated from reciprocity with nature, from community. And all of these things are deeply hurtful to indigenous communities. This is what they have told me, mm-hmm. that that it's just, it's like taking a family member away from a society, using it in a way that it wasn't mentioned. It's disrespectful to the community and it's disrespectful to the plant medicine itself, which is considered sacred. So that's so interesting. There are so many levels to that I want to dig into. One is Mm -hmm. the cultural, obviously, and this emotional kind of side of it, which you've talked about. What about ecological concerns that are also out there? Yes, the indigenous communities who use psychedelic plant medicines tend to have this view of nature where everything is reciprocal, where the nature is kin and relatives. And so often the way that they're being used clinically now or in, in just the underground use, that is completely separated from the connection to nature. Um, and they're considered maybe more like pills to take yeah. um, or something to use. And so much in, in, in our you know, non-Indigenous Western societies are things like we consider nature to be resources, something to be used. Mm-hmm. And, and that is not the way it is considered. So that is, again, deeply hurtful. Okay, so you interviewed two of the people who are behind a new first-of-its-kind paper that addresses this in an interesting way. They're presenting sort of ethical guidelines for engaging with Indigenous peoples in this kind of psychedelic research and practice. Describe their guidelines for us. Like, are there good ways to go about this for the broader kind of Western culture? So mainly there is reverence and respect for Mother Nature and the traditions that are surrounding these, respect for indigenous ways of knowing surrounding these plant medicines, 
and accountability, really. And that means partially reconciliation of relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And that means involving Indigenous people in psychedelic research, in, in therapy, in institutions, and, and really having them be the leaders, because I think often the way it is sort of framed amongst people in, in healthcare and in, in Western science systems is, oh, maybe indigenous people should have a seat at the table. And really it's their table. Mm -hmm. They have developed this knowledge over thousands of years and really they should be leading this because they are the ones who've developed the traditions around integrating this into society, integrating this into community and you know individual people and nature. And that is, I think, where we're sort of struggling right now as we develop this in, in the US, in Europe, in Australia, where these things are being decriminalized or legalized, mm -hmm. is how do we integrate this into the community? Well, Indigenous people have been doing this for thousands of years. They know they they developed this. So really, they should be leading this is what they're telling me. And we need to start developing those relationships and healing the relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, having them kind of set the stage for how we can incorporate these into society and have their voices be amplified finally after all this time. All right. We'll leave it there. That is Caridwen Cornelius, a journalist who's covering this issue. Caridwen, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for all of the information here. This is interesting reporting. Thank you so much. And that's the KZMU News for Thursday, June 8th. Get your community-powered journalism weekdays on the airwaves at noon and 6 p.m. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.